0: You'll be able to tell that it's Avdi speaking because you'll feel a warm glow start somewhere <laughs> around your belly and <laughs> expand out through your body.
1: <laughs> Hosting a bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic and optimize your application performance go to rubyrogues.com slash this episode was brought to you by waza heroku's one-day celebration of art and technique join matt's aaron patterson and more on february 28th in san francisco use exclusive code ready-rogues-13 for 50 dollars off registration at waza that's Heroku.com. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 93 of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel we have James Ogre Gray. Do you guys realize the top gun was redone in 3D? We also have Josh Susser.
2: How do I follow that?
0: Hi <laughs> <laughs> from San Francisco.
2: David Brady? I never write insecure code, but my code is frequently jealous, overdependent, constantly angry, and exhibits low self-confidence. Avdi Grimm?
3: James, you can be my wingman anytime. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Patrick McKenzie. Hi,
4: everybody. This is Patrick, and I'm phoning in from Japan.
1: Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly, since you haven't been on the show before?
4: Oh, sure. Um, My name is Patrick McKenzie. I'm perhaps better known as patio11 on the Internet. Largely, I'm on Hacker News because it's my job. For the last six years or so, I've run a small software-as-a-service business, selling software over the Internet. Uh, My primary language is Ruby on Rails, language-slash-framework. And the reason I'm on the show today is to talk a little bit about the recent Ruby on Rails vulnerabilities because I have a bit of knowledge about them and uh, wrote a blog post about it.
1: Awesome. All right. So, there are security issues with Rails?
5: <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay, we're done. Bye, everybody.
4: <laughs> so, do you want the... um Well, well, Uh, listeners who have been listening under a rock for the last couple of weeks, you want to just uh, get the 15 second explanation out of the way?
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah.
4: Yeah. Why are we all feeling insecure right
0: now?
1: Yeah. So, (laughs) so for the person who wasn't up till midnight last night reading the blog post that you told us to read,
4: what's going on? Sure. So, (laughs) since late December, there's been a number of. very, very critical issues found in Ruby on Rails. They largely stem to one root cause, which is that uh, deserializing YAML, which Rails uses a lot internally, is insecure. You're probably familiar with the YAML from like database.yml, where you have your you know production and uh, test and development settings for your databases. But it turns out that Rails uses the same format to deserialize other things like JSON in some instances. And YAML is a very powerful language. It lets you deserialize into arbitrary Ruby objects. And in late December, it was discovered that deserializing into arbitrary Ruby objects, depending on what uh, version of Ruby you're using, can cause arbitrary code to get executed. And people have been finding a variety of code paths to let them do that. Um, the most serious one would have allowed anybody to write basically a 15-line Ruby script and uh, remote compromise substantially every Ruby on Rails application on the Internet and run whatever the code they wanted on that server including, like, a system command to download a rootkit and start playing with it. Um, Awesome. So it was very bad. Uh, Those have been patched. If you haven't patched already, you should have patched three times in the last month. Literally, like, hang up right now and go patch. Um, If you have patched, that's wonderful. I'll be back in a minute. Um, And you're going to have to patch a few times in the next coming weeks because we've only seen the first couple of acts of this play so far. I'll just wait till
2: they settle out.
5: Okay, so there's like a million things in what you just said that we should probably talk about a little bit. First of all, if if you want to see how these exploits have basically been done, our good friend Tenderlove has a really good article uh, that just shows it very straightforward. It's super easy to read. Anyone can follow it so you can kind of understand uh, what's been going on here. And then... Another thing is that uh, Patrick has written a very detailed article about, uh, you know, what does this mean to your startup, basically, uh, which is the reason we had him on the show, and you should definitely read that because I see people complaining every day about things, and I'm like, you haven't read Patrick's article yet. It's obvious. Um, and then just a third thing I thought about while you were talking is uh, – Patrick mentioned that these exploits can be used to gain control of a um, of a uh, you know a server running an unpatched Rails. And we should point out that uh, the exploit has already been turned into a module for Metasploit, the Metasploit framework. So that's a penetration testing framework. So now it's it's literally point and click to compromise a Rails server. Uh, using these exploits, and you could, you know, use computers and send out thousands of them very quickly. So, yeah, basically every real site on the internet, you know, can be compromised with child's play
4: tools at this point. So,
5: um,
4: yeah. I think that's very important to emphasize because a lot of people think, well, my application isn't particularly security critical, or there isn't a whole amount, a uh, huge amount of money involved, or I haven't offended any hackers, but there are literally people doing port scans of the entire internet, and for every IP address and IP four, just like hitting up port eighty and, you know, firing off four HTTP requests. And you know, if your server just got added to their botnet, it was running Rails. <laughs> if um, you were, you know, running WordPress or something, then it's just another 404 error. So I would strongly suggest that you, you know, drop what you're doing and patch immediately. You will be. Um Any application that you do not patch is going to get owned, um, so, whether that's a customer-facing website or, you know, some internal tool, an instance of Redmine that happens to be accessible outside your firewall for some reason. Um, if it is up there, it will get owned.
1: So when you say patch or update, what you're saying is go in and update your version of Rails. So right, basically bundle update, update Rails.
4: The, yeah, you need to uh, update to one of the fixed versions. They're listed in the security, you know, the... The most current fixed version is in the most current security notice that's been published. And um, the option, if your application is not in a state uh, to do an immediate upgrade, there's a few things that you can like drop in initializers that will kind of hammer one one of these holes um, closed at a time. But if you have an application that you depend on that is not in a state where it can easily upgrade, I would make that your number one priority for. Uh, February to get in a point where you can reliably upgrade when a new version gets released because um, while everything has been amenable to like kind of easy monkey patches so far, that certainly is not guaranteed for some stuff coming down the pike. So is there a
1: link to those lists so that people can go and look and see
4: where they're at on the security spectrum? Um, Yep. I think we're probably going to put a link to the Rails as security disclosure list in the show notes probably and that's the... yeah. That uh, is was, the sole source of truth about this, yeah, I was just looking yeah. for
0: that in the in the yeah. chat so, I, I, so I, I have it right there okay. um, the, unfortunately, it's a Google group, and the URLs for Google groups are not something that can be pronounced on the air,
5: yeah, go for that but
0: guys it's the Ruby on Rails security Google group, and that can be searched for okay, okay, go ahead
5: it's a it's a really good group too. i actually in preparation for this call i I went through, there's lots of resources out there, including, I I found at least one that you can pay for. Uh, I I wouldn't recommend it. This group is great. Uh, It's basically all signal, no noise. Uh, They give you the security exploit and tell you what to do, you know, so that's exactly what you need to know. So um, that's probably the best place to stay on top of them, but Ah, uh, the Rails core team's been really good about as these are coming up. They're releasing super minor patches for all the major versions of Rails. So then you can go in there. You know, even if you're not uh, using the most current thing, you can go in there and and upgrade the minor point uh, uh, release or the teeny point release uh, to uh, the patched version. And the, and all that's in these patches are the fix. So. You know very low chance that you you have some problem from the upgrade, basically awesome so Patrick, one of the questions that we got over uh Twitter to ask you is why why are there so many right now um and you you talk about this a bit in your article, but let's talk about it on the air like why is all this happening?
4: Sure, well, the fundamental insight is that security bugs and anything tend to be discovered in groups. Largely because once you have one uh, kind of vector for, you know, one like underlying vulnerability, like we just discovered that YAML parsing can be um, weaponized in a particular circumstance, then it's much easier to discover other similar code paths that exercise the same underlying vulnerability, but are kind of maintained separately from another Another is that um, the incentives for security researchers, both white hats and black hats, are kind of screwy. Um, White hat security researchers, and I guess that's a hat I wear like 5% of the time myself, are incentivized by a desire like academics to find stuff to be able to publish. And so the notion that a particular uh, framework or a particular language has had a, a spate of vulnerabilities recently gets people to look at that because it's likely that they will be able to find new vulnerabilities in that framework and thus be able to uh, publish and get the uh, credit slash kudos slash uh, commercial recognition for that success. Um, similarly, Black Hat uh, researchers are largely you know, incentivized by being able to compromise applications and the notion that, hey, we could compromise every Rails application on the internet instantly Or, you know, effectively instantly, if we have a botnet, is uh, pretty powerful if you are, you know, the kind of person who runs botnets for a living. So, yeah, I've heard a lot of people saying that it's just, you know, because Rails slash Ruby has a uh, cruddy security record or cruddy community or anything. And I think that's pretty far from the truth. You see this kind of framework, uh, this um, pattern of events over and over again in pretty much all web stacks and all languages. You know, if J2EE, the Big freaking enterprise Java framework uh, has a code execution vulnerability, which happens um, every year—or well, not every year—but happens uh, every once in a while. You can expect that to be followed by other similar disclosures uh, within a matter of typically weeks.
5: So, just to give a concrete example, there the the original exploit uh, or one of the original exploits was that in Rails you can send XML. You can send your parameters in XML. Uh, but Rails also had a feature where it would allow you to embed YAML in the XML. And then as Patrick mentioned before, YAML being so flexible, it allowed this, this exploit. Uh, and again, I refer to the Tenderlove article if you want to see, uh, how to, how to do that. So that was patched. And then like Patrick said, what they do immediately after that is they try to find another way to do the same thing, right? Well, it turns out that Rails also allowed you to send JSON and embed YAML inside the JSON. And so then, you know, bypassing the XML route, they could go in through the JSON and basically do the same thing. So that's why, uh, you know, yeah. they're, they're poking kind of like, at the same hole.
3: It's kind of like blood in the water, right? Once no. right. there's some in the water, then the, the sharks cart starts swarming at hey, yeah. hey, hey,
0: Patrick, Patrick I, I, got, I have a, a couple words that I would like you to define. Sure. Since we've, since we've started using them. Uh, you've been, we've been talking about vulnerabilities and exploits. So can you talk about the like? what's a vulnerability versus what's an exploit?
4: Sure. A vulnerability exists. like It is a fact of nature. Given that we are using uh, code or languages written a certain way, there is something, a misfeature or a bug in that code, language, etc. that enables someone to do something that we don't expect and would allow them to do bad things to us. An exploit is actual working code which exercises that vulnerability. So, for example, the Metasploit framework, or you know, even just a privately maintained Ruby script that actually you know you can point at a server and own it would be a working exploit. You can have vulnerabilities without being exploited if either nobody knows about the vulnerability, which was true of these, um, you know, six weeks ago. Or you can have a vulnerability which we can look at it and say, this code is almost certainly vulnerable, but we haven't successfully weaponized an exploit against it. Meaning we haven't figured Mm -hmm. out like the right combination of inputs to uh, give the code to uh, like exercise that vulnerability. And, And what about like a zero day exploit? So I don't love the term zero day, but be that as it may, it's one that's used in the industry a lot. A zero-day exploit means that you are hit with an exploit on patch day, meaning you had essentially no warning about it. Uh, why don't I like this? Because it suggests to people that patch day is the earliest warning you're going to get, which is not necessarily true, or that you will always get warning in advance, which is also not necessarily true. Uh, what, what
0: do you, What do you mean by patch day?
4: Uh, the day Rails releases publicly, you know, we had X vulnerability discovered, and we have produced a patch for it. Is patch okay. day, all right? And um, it would have been an extraordinarily bad idea to wait even one day on some of these vulnerabilities, because again, they were you could remote compromise servers over the internet and compromise everything in the IP four space within that day. So it's very important that you apply the patch on patch day. It was within the realm of possibility that someone could drop a zero-day exploit, meaning that they would actually successfully backtrack from the patch or the vulnerability disclosure to working exploit code and then actually use that for evil means on the same day as the patch dropped. However, it's also possible for people, these vulnerabilities have been found by white hat researchers, but it's possible for the black hats to have the vulnerability working before patch day. So you could potentially get hit by, like, you know, a negative two-day exploit, and then, well, sucks to be you, right? So, yeah, I don't love the discourse of zero-day vulnerabilities. For example, like a lot of people would describe what happened to RubyGems as a zero-day vulnerability in that they were exploited on the same day they learned about that exploit being possible, but I don't know if that necessarily advances the conversation. We should probably talk about what happened to RubyGems, too, because it's slightly different than the Rails issue, but is kind of related and is of you know massive importance to every Rubyist.
5: Yeah, let's let's definitely do talk about that. That was a big uh thing. And I think that the, uh there was a tweet from uh, Nick Caranto uh when uh he basically said we're putting Ruby gems in maintenance mode uh till we can assess what's happened here. And I, I think that was how it all started. So yeah, tell us what happened now.
4: Okay, so again, recently as a result of this um, research in the Ruby on Rails community, we've learned that deserializing YAML is a very, very dangerous activity. And so some folks who are probably not white hats started looking at all the other applications other than like the Ruby on Rails core framework that would accept YAML from outside sources. One of those applications was the uh, RubyGems um, website slash framework, which... Was open source, so they had you know a pretty easy time detecting. Okay, if we give YAML in the gem description file, then Ruby gems will actually parse that YAML to be able to do their operations on the back end, and that allows us to own the Ruby gem server. So they um, uploaded a specially coded gem called appropriately enough exploit, which basically caused the Ruby to execute arbitrary code by um, taking a bunch of the like Ruby server credentials. And posting them to a paste bin where the attacker could then review them at the leisure. The fact of that exploit was disclosed to some people within the security community and some of them immediately, you know, got on the uh, horn with the RubyGems maintainers, which caused RubyGems to put the uh, RubyGems service into maintenance mode, meaning they wouldn't accept any other uh, new RubyGems. And uh, for a while, they weren't actually distributing RubyGems at all. And then they had to verify that all the gems that were in there uh, back-end repository were not compromised. The ultimate nightmare scenario would have been, you know, not somebody doing that kind of like a just grab RubyGems credentials and laugh at them a little bit on the internet uh, framework, but um to successfully exploit the RubyGems framework and use that to put backdoors or rootkits into commonly used root uh, gems. And then anybody who types bundle updates or... Ah, uh, gem install anything for you know a period of weeks or months before it's discovered would have their machines rooted, and like that's the ultimate nightmare you know apocalypse for the Ruby community kind of uh, disaster. And I think we missed that by minutes. It was a very close thing. Yeah, I hate to sound overly dramatic, but it is kind of like Cuban Missile Crisis level as far as software is concerned, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So the team
5: put Ruby gems in maintenance mode, and we've actually had. Discussions on this podcast before about, you know, what to do when you're compromised and, and the number one step always, as, as our understanding goes, is get it offline, like shut it down, you know, was the, the Ruby gems reaction correct? Like the first thing they did, I mean, they just kind of put it in maintenance mode, but I mean, is that okay, not really knowing the level of their compromise? And the reason I ask is because Heroku, I don't think, thought it was okay. Um, they uh, immediately shut off parts of the Ruby stack because they said they were not confident of the current state of RubyGems.
4: I have a huge amount of respect for the RubyGems maintainers. They're doing an awesome service for the community. I would hate to um, you know, cast aspersions on anybody's decisions, particularly when those decisions are you know, made at a time of great stress and easy to pick from uh, 14 time zones away, as it is in my case. Oh, yeah, um, I, I totally agree. Uh, please uh, please the, end the that the sentence with but. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I, I totally wasn't meaning the to criticize them as much <laughs> as to educate what we should do when it happens yeah. to us.
4: Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm not of trying the, to kick these guys' tires,
4: right? Of the two reactions, um, I would suggest patterning your own behavior off of Heroku. Uh, for example, if you know I received uh, word of uh, one of my servers getting compromised, then I would immediately take my entire network outline, uh, offline until I figured out what was uh, happening btw if any server that you run gets compromised with one of these things and the attacker like gains control of that server assume all your other servers are going to get compromised in a very short order even if they are patched and everything right basically you've all, you're already mm-hmm. in total emergency mode after after uh, you've discovered that an exploit is happening and it's going to get worse for every minute that you wait um, you're that gives the attacker time to get Wormed even deeper into your services slash machines slash network, slash etc. And it means that you're continuing to expose your users to risk that many of us run applications where people are interacting with them every minute of the day, every password, every credit card, etc. that's getting traded with a compromised machine is going to be assumed to be compromised, right? Right.
0: Yeah, we we did episode fifty nine with Rain Henriks and and we had a long discussion about security responses. So I'll I'll refer our listeners to to check that episode out because the, the focus of that episode is much about like it is much more about how do you respond to these things as someone who's been exploited, and um, I think you know which is a great topic. But I think what we're talking about here mainly is like what what do we as users of the Ruby ecosystem have to deal with, which which includes that, but it's also like. You know how do we how do we uh, how do we just take care of things so that security doesn't become as much of an issue <laughs> and we don't have to have that happening,
5: right? So yeah. what you're saying, Patrick, about the other machines being compromised—like if you have several servers that communicate with each other and somebody uses one of the exploits to get a rootkit on one of them or whatever—then again, tools like Metasploit give them point-and-click ways to use that machine's credentials to do something to another machine, right? So
4: that's right. why. There's a variety of ways they can do it. Um, they could do, you know, point-and-click split, uh, point and click things like metasploits and just um, uh, test every piece of software you've got running on an open port and see if you haven't updated anything. Um, you know, they can use uh, SSH credentials that you might have left on the machine to get, quote-unquote, legitimate root shells on the other uh, machine's Um, basically, after they're, after they have access on one thing on your local network, unless you have done absolutely everything right, they're going to get access on all the other ones too. Um, so I would bet against having done everything right. Even, you know, folks who have more, like more budget invested in security than all of our businesses will see in their entire operating histories, um, in like total revenue, they lose everything when they lose one machine. So assume you're going to lose. I have
1: to ask, and I think I know the answer to this, but uh I guess every exploit's different, so
4: there isn't really a good way of knowing
1: whether or not you've been compromised.
4: Yes. I I hate that answer, but uh the, so, the first what, part what, what, about what, being compromised is that like you know, by definition, it means you can no longer trust what the machine is telling you.
5: Right, like so, log files and stuff. Right.
4: The right. the log files are in the hands of the enemy. Your monitoring code is in the hands of the enemy. You know, your database is in the hands of the enemy. The terminal that you are, um, like, assigning into to infect, inspect the file system is in the hands of the enemy. There is basically, like, nothing you can do to definitively say that, okay, this machine not compromised. Or, you know, to trust that a particular representation the machine is giving you is accurate. So, um, that's why you take it offline and then start reimaging from source, which, yeah, sucks. But there you go. How
2: can you trust that you really are reimaging from source? <laughs> well, I, this is, is I hope you've got some good news for us because this podcast is making me want to not be a programmer anymore. Right, <laughs> I know, right.
4: <laughs> right. Well, ideally you're using git or something and you have them you know, you have your uh, known good copy of your source tree and you have a known good recipe for uh, chef, sorry, chef slash puppet or whatever that allows you to, you know, build a new machine from bare metal. So yep. you fire that uh, those known good things against it and uh, uh, spin up another copy of the server. And then another, ideally here, ideally you have a backup copy of the database somewhere that was not compromised. Um, and ideally, your database does not have any executable code in it that will immediately cause it to recompromise itself as soon as it's spun out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I- I- and hopefully no one's compromised your backups. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully no one has deleted your backups. So so what are um, a security problem, you think they're, they're before the grace of God goes I, and you should look at your own security setup and think, okay, if something like this happened to me, what could I do about it? And I did that analysis for my own stuff, and I thought, what happens if I lose the server? Okay, I've got backups. And I thought, if I lose the server, am I going to lose all the backups? Yeah. Oh well, that's problematic. Um, should probably work on that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I like the physically disconnected media form of of backups. I, <laughs> I I worked in an organization where like every you know every day they would you know do backups to a a you know, you know portable hard drive and then disconnect it and put it in a locked closet. It's like, <laughs> Really hard for people to compromise it when it's locked up that way.
5: Yeah, and yeah. good backup strategy we should mention is that. Uh, basically, you should never have only one source of backup right you should you should always have two or three is probably better
1: right yeah, the other thing is is that um in your backup sources, you want multiple versions that way, if they manage to compromise one version, you can still roll back to a clean version
3: patrick you uh after you realized uh, that your ba- backup strategy was insufficient what uh like what did you strategy did you settle on?
4: Um, so it's kind of a work in progress at the moment. I'll, I'll give you a little like outline of what I do for backups. I keep um, most of my services run on VPSs, and so I have backups of the source code through the magic of Git in a few places. But backups of the uh, database or the um, you know Redis store or whatever are kept locally on the machine, and then the machine is itself backed up. Being a VPS, there's a you know, snapshot image of it taken every couple of hours, which uh, sits at the same hosting provider. And I thought, oh, wait, if you compromise my account on the hosting provider, I lose everything. Uh, that's bad. So um, I'm going to be looking into doing some sort of um, uh, hosting to a redundant thing that doesn't share authentication or anything. I'm kind of looking at Tarsnap because uh, folks who I trust have said good things about it. So, um, can you say that again? Tarsnap. It's made by uh, Colin Percival, who used to be the security officer for BSD. Um, so, you know, a guy who seriously knows his stuff.
5: And I just want to say that their motto at the top of their page is online backups for the truly paranoid. <laughs> and
3: nice. you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not coming to get you. That's right. Which is actually completely true in this, con- this context.
2: It you know, is I, true. I actually... Uh, just because of this is how I roll. I recently went and looked up the definition of paranoia and it's an irrational fear or mistrust of others. What we are discussing is a perfectly rational fear (laughs) and mistrust.
4: The internet is out to get you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great slogan. The internet is out to get you. (laughs) It
5: is. So, all right, maybe taking the conversation in a different direction. Um, Patrick, has this changed your opinion of YAML? Like, do you do you believe that YAML is kind of how a lot of this started? Do you believe that it's a problem that we're so YAML centric in the Ruby world, and we should look at other tools? Like, has it changed your opinion?
4: So, I don't think it's a problem. I do think we probably need to stop using the stock um, Ruby lib, um, Ruby standard lib. In the YAML serializers, which allow deserializing arbitrary objects, and move into a paradigm where we only deserialize a short, whitelisted list of objects that we generally consider to be safe, like hash, array, uh, string, integer, and then you know that be it. And then at a like particular call site for YAML dot load, uh, allow the user to whitelist other objects that they expect to come out of that particular call site. Um, or have, you know, a global application-wide um, whitelist available. I feel These, like
3: yeah, like YAML right. is just not... I don't know, it, just, it seems like it's probably not the greatest thing to be using for internet data exchange. I mean, I love YAML. It's fantastic for configuration files. Um, also really good for, for serializing objects locally, but not so great for passing messages around, maybe.
2: Ultimately, I think I, it's just too powerful, right? I yeah. mean, the... Uh, YAML is is wonderful because it's you know make your data look like Python, but um, which is is great because Python's you know as a language is very elegant and clean. Um, I think the just the real problem is just the arbitrary serialization.
3: Yeah, and, and there are a lot of arguments to be made, not just the security argument, but there are a lot of arguments to be made for passing around constrained data types. Yeah, uh, the way JSON does.
2: The thing yeah, that I've... burns me up about this is that I spent a year back in two thousand nine trying to figure out how to cleanly serialize lambdas so that we could store them in the database. And <laughs> we couldn't find a clean way to do it, so we ended up writing our own DSL and storing that. And now these a-holes have gone off and figured out how to do it on anything.
0: <laughs> I, might, I might have to look at the exploit source code just to learn something. <laughs> I, I don't think they're serializing lambdas. <laughs> no,
5: they're basically, just to explain it very simply, they're able to construct the YAML document such that When it's read in, if you have an object in your system that's doing a string eval, they can manipulate what's being evaled by that string, which thus allows them to execute arbitrary Ruby code.
3: One of the things that I was struck by while I was reading through the exploit documentations was just how circuitous the attack routes are. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, multi-steps using obscure very specifically chosen obscure classes in in rails or in ruby that happen to to do th- implement things a certain way which which can then be used to you know to sort of move to the next level of the the um the next step of the exploit and it 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 hurt my head a little and yeah it's just i don't know if there's a question in there it was just it was just sort of humbling to realize there is really no you really just, you, you can't just look at your code and be like, oh, that's not exploitable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Do you well, remember it, the buffer underruns it, from from way back when? The The limit on buffer underrun is you only had, you, you could only underrun a buffer by 78 bytes. And somebody posted source code within a couple of weeks of 78 uh, bytes of Intel assembly code that would go to the internet, download a script, and execute it. Which means you now have infinity bytes of buffer underrun. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, we were, we were actually having a discussion, uh, at the company I'm working for when these security exploits hit. And, uh, they have an old legacy system that's on, um, MySQL and does some, you know, not super secure things. And it, it turns out that that is a problem in the case of, um, uh, not these exploits, but just in general in that, Because MySQL prefers to cast everything instead of just failing. Um, it, because you can send JSON parameters to Rails, you can do things like send an integer to a field that's actually a string. So, and if that integer is zero, when MySQL casts that string, as long as it doesn't have a leading digit, it's going to be zero. So that's going to equal, that's going to match true for every record in the database, right? And then using that, because you can manipulate the parameters, you know, depending on how the queries are constructed, it's possible you could get it to return entries that aren't actually you, you know. Uh, and that's, it it's kind of speaks to what Avdi's saying, you know, it requires this flexibility from MySQL, it requires the way we pass in these parameters, and then you know, the fact that we can do JSON means that we can actually get an integer in there where usually we would get a string with a web request, and it's just All these things added together can be used to do bad things.
0: In, in some ways, it's like, um, it's like playing a game and you're on a quest and there's all sorts of, uh, things that you have to achieve along your way to reach your ultimate goal. And you don't always know what the next step is until you've achieved the one right in front of you. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I, so it's, it's, I can see how there's a certain, um, a certain appeal to solving that kind of problem. It, it's not that different
4: from the kind of things that uh, that we get paid to do in our jobs every day, right? Yeah, I think a lot of folks who are you know good solid web app developers would be good solid security researchers if they just got a little more perverse in their thinking and, <laughs> and applied kind of the same skills to a different end. So, so, um, so, but, so,
0: Patrick, do you, do you need to have that kind? So, I assume there's some sort of like mindset for you know hacker oh, by the way do you prefer hacker or cracker <laughs> for for somebody who's uh, like a black hat who's who's going after trying to compromise systems
4: i think it's you know society has spoken and they think hacker is that guy so call it hacker um typically folks call themselves security researchers when they want to sound like they are um you know, upstanding <laughs> members of society. <laughs> so, so is the mind look at me, I'm just a harmless harmless academic. I totally can't kill people by typing stuff into a computer.
0: <laughs> uh, oh man. <laughs> okay. So to be a to be a good guy, you know, to, to be a security expert or a security researcher, does that require you to have the same kind of mindset
4: as the people trying to, you know, do the security exploits? So a thing that I often find in people who are very good at this is that they are able to take a look at, like, complex complex systems of rules and start seeing where those rules don't quite, like, cover each other. Like, if you had somebody who played, I don't know, Dungeons & Dragons, and he was a inveterate mix-maxer, he figured out that there was one way that nobody ever anticipated to get, like, a sword of plus 347 of killing uh, living things. (laughs) And then, you know, enchanted it with something to kill undead things as well. That like kind of mentality works very very well for, for kind of finding the uh, weak points of code, the weak points of systems.
0: Yeah, uh, you, to- you know if, if you cast a fireball in a in a tunnel that's ten feet high and ten feet wide, it will go thirty three. It fills up thirty three thousand cubic feet of <laughs> space, so you can you can hit enemies that are thirty three grids away. <laughs> <That is> okay. <awesome. laughs> Even yeah. though the range on the spell's only twenty feet, <laughs> I am among my people.
4: Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: my favorite
2: Munchkin weapon from D anD D was the plus three sword that's plus six versus creatures whose names start with J, B, or P. Nice. <laughs> awesome.
5: I want to take the conversation in a slightly different direction. I saw these. Cool uh, tweets by uh, Peter Cooper when a lot of this was going down. And basically what he said was, you know, this mainly got started by an exploit on a kind of bizarre feature of Rails, right? That it takes parameters in XML, okay, maybe that one's pretty understandable, but that it allows you to embed YAML in that XML and it ends up getting converted and stuff, I'm pretty sure not very many people knew that feature existed. And, you know, I, I, I'm i assuming the number of people using that feature was a very, very small number, you know. So so the question is, Rails kind of takes this attitude of, and I don't know so much that it's part convention over configuration, though, I bet that's some of it. But it kind of takes this attitude of let's just turn everything on, everything they might need, and have it all work just out of the box. Is that really the best strategy? I mean, I I don't think anybody would argue that we want to have to go into some kind of config file and turn on Active Record or something like that. But, um, you know, that there's a lot of features of Rails. But is there maybe an argument for it? it might be okay to have us go into a config file and turn on YAML parsing inside of XML, right? <laughs> that, that there would be less open vectors, right, for uh, security attacks, and that not a lot of people end up needing that feature, I'm assuming, but I hope it's a safe assumption. And, and then another point Peter made was also, you know, nobody... Or We're assuming not very many people knew that this feature even existed. If I had to go into a file and look at all the choices, you know, of switches I could flip on, then at least I would know it existed, (laughs) you know, which is something I probably didn't before. Any thoughts on that? Like, should we turn everything on by default?
4: I think there's a danger there in that with 2020 hindsight, if you know that the vulnerability is coming down the pike in XML parsing with embedded YAML documents, then yes, yes. Obviously, you don't want to be doing that, but um, that was not obvious when that line of code was written in, I think, two thousand eight. You know, and it was probably written to support like one Rails app that needed that, but uh, that seemed like a great idea at the time. Yeah, and, and I thought that was. You know, there must be at least a thousand decisions that are, you know, equally arbitrary in the Rails code base. and if you were to uh, put a thousand like if checks to check configuration files. I don't necessarily think that that would put Ruby security in a better place. First of all, for a lot of these things, it's not obvious from like looking at the code paths that a particular code path is accessible at all. Like that's kind of how these are getting discovered. And second, if you went to the massive change of like retrofitting Ruby, sorry Rails 2.3.x or um, anything but edge Rails with you know a thousand extra security features. You would probably introduce about as much um, kind of like surface area for attacks as you're taking away.
3: Yeah, I, I remember when I first saw the thing about the the YAML inside of XML. I thought that is insane. Why would that ever be a thing? <laughs> That's and, what I thought too. You know, and but I I, I read up. I did my homework last night, and, and and you know, if you look at at the you know parameter incoming parameter parsing like API parameter parsing from the perspective of of making a system that. Where, where you can, you know, serialize an object and then deserialize the same object. So you can, you know, send an object over to some client and then they modify something and then send it back. Well, a lot of Rails code bases do have uh, attributes that are serialized to YAML. Like that's, you know, one of the basic active record options is you can serialize, you can have an, an attribute which is serialized YAML. And that's what that feature was for. It was for those attributes that where you've used serialize and you've said, I want this, this to be this, this database column to be some YAML code. And that's not, that's not that uncommon. I don't think.
4: Mm-hmm. I'll so, also cop to having like an actual production system in my resume where we put a JSON grab bag in the middle of an XML file just because Uh, You know, you've been around a big organization before. Somebody in Department X mandates that all systems have to use XML, and we needed to ship a particular system in a quarter, and the only way it was going to happen was to, you know, do it in JSON that could actually be uh, delivered without having to touch a um, big freaking Java enterprise uh, piece of middleware on both sides of two you know, independently managed code bases. So, you know, these things happen in the real world, and... I think um, ultimately as a kind of like pragmatic choice for programming, Rails does have to, you know, meet the needs of apps like that? Question mark? That's
5: (laughs) an interesting question. I, I wasn't necessarily saying we should take these features away, and I was more just speaking to the statistical likelihood. Like, how many people, you know? I mean, right now I think it's a fair question to say how many people's Rails apps are accepting XML? I mean, I don't think it's popular in our current environment. Like, I think we've pretty much settled on JSON, you know, as, as a, a good inter-process format. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm sure it does at lots of places. Like you said, Patrick Legacy Systems and, and stuff like that, you bet. And some people just have reason to prefer XML for, you know, markup kind of stuff, but um, I, don't, I don't know that it's super common as it once was. And and I was wondering, uh, you know, if, if just statistically speaking, you know, if we lower some of those vectors, if there's value in that. But I, I definitely hadn't considered what you said about, you know, the systems to do that, introducing additional attack points as well.
4: And so, Speaking of which, just so we're not regan on um, YAML, the whole day. Uh, XML, by the way, is an incredibly complicated format. And even in the total absence of YAML, I think that if anyone tells you they actually understand everything that an XML parser does, they're lying. Um, because it's beyond the comprehension of human minds. Like there, there are ways to like basically define tags local to an XML document within that XML document or to override the meaning of particular characters. It gets absolutely crazy. So. You know, if you want to look in your magic eight ball for things that will be discovered in the next year, there's probably going to be some like just pure XML attacks against uh, common XML parsers, um, which might counsel, you know, turn it off unless anybody uh, needs it. But there you go.
0: One of the things that, that, you know, James, as you were talking about this, like enabling features, uh, you know, that you might not be using or not. the One of the things that uh, that I always see in Rails apps is the things like the xML or the dot js extensions for formats on routes, which are they just come as yeah you know, when you do you know, when you do uh, map resources in your routes file, you just get xML and json and and whatever else uh, is part of the of the rails standard these days and And I always look at that and say, I don't want formats on my routes. And, and the, the being able to get rid of that stuff is actually kind of, you know, you have to look around to figure out how to do it.
5: And it exposes some data, right? I mean, usually not too painful, but, you know, sometimes it adds some extra timestamp information that maybe you do or don't want the outside world to have, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, I think that the, that, that there's a lot in Rails that's set up to just be, uh you know, low friction to be able to use everything and, I guess we're learning that maybe that's not the best thing. So
5: I'm definitely biased about this discussion, but the CSV library that I wrote in Ruby got dragged into uh, this conversation uh, as it was happening. It turns out that CSV also would allow you to serialize Ruby objects. So I I had a method called CSV dump and you could pass a tree of Ruby objects to it or actually an array. And it would, uh, it would flatten them out into a CSV file. And then there was a CSV load, uh, feature that would, uh, reconstruct those objects in Ruby. And when doing that, if you construct a CSV file correctly, you could arrange to have, uh, certain methods called and pass them what you want. So you could call, uh, system and pass it rm-rf or whatever. It was definitely an exploit. So, A lot of people jumped on that and said that CSV reading is compromised, which is totally misguided and overblown. This had nothing to do with CSV's normal reading and writing system, which was fine. It was a side feature that I had experimented with and put in. And then people were arguing, well, people are probably accidentally using that feature because, you know, the name load isn't very clear Uh, Again, I think that's pretty misunderstanding the problem. It required a specially formatted CSV file, you know, as produced by, like, Dump. So, you know, if you had called load on your normal, you know, business spreadsheet, it would have just failed with an error or something, you know, because you weren't passing it the kind of data it was expecting. Um, So I'm pretty sure nobody was using it by accident. We did things like code searches on GitHub and found zero uses of it, you know, and stuff. I think it was just a, a toy feature I stuck in at one point and, and nobody ever used because why would you? And, and so there was a big discussion and, and it ended in me just removing the feature. I, I think it had very little value. I probably shouldn't have put it in there in the first place. And, and all of that, I think, is a good conversation to have. But in, in the process, people... I was asking like questions like, are we changing our mind on Ruby should trust you with the sharp scissors? Because that's always been one of the things about Ruby, right? That it does have all these super powerful tools and you know we trust you as the programmer to handle those tools correctly. And I was worried that when people were arguing against CSV serialization that they were saying you know, no, we can't trust people with powerful tools like that, which I don't agree with. I do agree that the features should be removed because nobody was using it. It didn't have a point you could use Marshall or YAML or whatever. But, you know, are we changing our mind about Ruby trusting us with the sharp scissors? Uh,
0: I think that's a great question. Another way to, I think, maybe look at that same question is, you know, if you look at a language like Java, security was one of the things that they cared about from the very start. And they put a lot of design effort into the language to make it be secure from the ground up. And uh, I'm not—I don't think that Ruby has a has a uh, attitude that oh, hey, you know, we don't we don't you know give a toss about security. But it's not as as uh, as big a focus for Ruby. You know, there's like safe level is I think the only the only quote security feature that I'm aware of in the language. And uh, and
3: nobody knows how to use safe levels.
5: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I gotta say like, I mean, it's hard for me to have confidence in safe levels because, you know, Brian, I think, has pointed this out a lot in the past, just that, you know, turning on a certain safe level has massive changes all throughout the Ruby VM, you know? right? Are we sure that's all okay? You know, like, there's no problems with any of that, we're sure? You know, like, I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but the the attitude of of you know, Ruby and the you know the positioning of the of the Ruby language and everything that goes into it versus security is it it's an incredibly dynamic language you can you can do almost anything to the to your program or someone else's program in memory with you uh, that you want you know you can reopen classes you can you know call private methods. You know you can directly access instance variables so the it's it's very much a you know do whatever you want to anything kind of language it's not like Java where you can freeze things and close and you know prevent people from inheriting from your class and, and that kind of stuff
1: so I have well, to it, ask then are you saying that the horse is already out of the barn so you know there's nothing we can do about it or are you saying that you know right or wrong this is where we're at or no, are you I, agreeing or disagreeing with James
0: <laughs> well I I I think what I'm saying is that the fundamental nature of Ruby prevents it from being as secure as something like Java at the language level. There's just too much dynamism and ability to change things however you want so that if you want to have something that is uh, that is secure in your, in your application, you have to have some sort of layer on top of that that imposes a better security outlook.
2: I think that's, that's, that's bang on that one of the things that I'm noticing working with, uh, a net team is that they're, they're used to having to define an interface to everything. And with Ruby, everything's duct typing. And I, I think that's a feature of Ruby and you certainly can lock anything down that you want. But if you want to lock something down, you have to explicitly lock it down where languages like Java or C sharp, you know, if you want to unlock something, you have to explicitly unlock it. Yeah.
3: I have kind of a related question. Looking through these exploits, I got to wondering, is it worthwhile to think about safer coding practices? Just like, is it worth even worthwhile to to have some rules for things that we try to avoid um and that we try to, you know, tell other people to avoid? Like, you know, everybody knows evaling unsafe data is a no-no. Uh, but these these exploits were carried out without any explicit evals in the application code or the Rails code. And one of the ways that that was done was, uh, using the ability to, to substitute, you know, arbitrary values for instance variables in, in objects loaded by YAML. You could pick out, you could f- go find a class in Rails or in Ruby, you know, an existing class which did a send. Uh, you know, a, like dot a object.send where you where you send an arbitrary m- method. Uh, and it would say there would be one instance variable, which was the, the receiver, and another op- instance variable, which was the name of the method to send. And so then they were able to say, okay, well, the name of the method to send is going to be eval. And there you go. You've got your eval, eval. But that never would have happened if the programmer had, had used public send there. Which public send actually uh, respects public and private boundaries uh, in in Ruby and public I- and uh, eval is actually a private method it's on every object but it's a private method so you can call it you always you, you call it with with no dot in front of it and so like I could easily say and i' I've, I've, I'm a big advocate of using public send everywhere anyway like you should always default to public send not just not straight send unless you have a really good reason to do straight send but is that just totally like off off base like false sense of security stuff where where we could never you know there's no point talking about these rules or is, is it is it worthwhile having a few rules that's like you know where you're probably going to be better off you're going to avoid maybe 80% of cases if you avoid certain constructs
5: No I, I think you're you're exactly on and and to be clear the exploit you just described where you could send uh, any method to uh any object is exactly what was in CSV. So one of the things I could have done is just switch it to public send, like you said, and I did actually even consider that. Um, the Um So as far as the send thing, I think the reason that happens is that public send is relatively new, right? It came in in Ruby 1.9, I think. Right. And so I think we just got into the habit of using send for that. In the one eight and below era, and then we haven't caught up and realized. Oh yeah, I should. De- it's like you said. I should default to public send, and then only use send when it matters. That I then, still still
3: you know, think we should have. We should have. Uh, they they should have stuck with with making send into public send, and, and uh, just dealing with all the broken applications, and and then yes. adding a private send. But
5: yeah, that was water under discussed. the bridge. That was discussed when. Uh, when the change was made in one nine, some of us argued for changing the behavior of send so that it would only send to public methods. And the argument from the other side was that would break a lot of code, and that's true because everybody was using it, you know, not assuming that. Um, and so instead, public send was added as the safer version.
0: It would probably only break mostly tests, right?
5: Oh, uh, I know. Know. a lot
4: of
0: code. No,
3: I don't
0: know. <laughs>
5: I, mean, I think I it actually I think they actually did it for a while and it broke like half the standard library. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's
3: so common to find constructs like like a class which, you know, where y- you can pass in a hash of, of options which become instance, you know, which which become instance variable setters and it does it by saying, you know, self.set or, you know, send to self the the key the key name and then equal sign and then the
1: value.
5: Like, yeah. like active record does with its constructor, right can
1: I derail uh, this for a minute because I'm wondering if these exploits are any better or worse in one eight versus one nine or is it strictly rails
4: so the process of actually achieving exploit is diff- more difficult on one point eight than it is on one point nine. I have been told by numerous credible people that there are ex- like there are private exploits that work on one eight um whereas all of the uh, the Metasploit framework test and, uh, the exploits that have been detailed publicly are all work on Ruby 1.9 exclusively because the, uh, sick, sorry, the psych parser is the, uh, Ruby standard load default for 1.9. And it just turns out basically on the basis of like, you know, the chance of how a particular dozen lines of code were written that um, 1.9 is much more easily exploitable than 1.8 is. But, you know, you're definitely not safe if you're on 1.8 and just consider that to be your, you know, your uh, panacea. Interesting. All Going
5: right. back to what Abdi was saying, though, like, there's there's string eval, and I think we all know that that's, you know, a, a judgment call and dangerous. They... There, there's reasons though, like, like in a lot of the exploits that were used, they could have used define method instead, instead of the string eval they were doing. But in Rails, a lot of times they'll use string eval for performance. Define method introduces a performance penalty because the block is a closure. And so, you know, requires some additional dereferencing. Whereas once the string eval has happened, it's basically a normal method, like you had just written that method, right? And so because of that, there's no long term penalty uh for it. So sometimes they prefer that construct in something like Rails, which needs to run as fast as possible through that code, you know, there there's reasons to use those tools, basically.
4: Right. I think there's a bit of a danger in that um, you know, it's so it's definitely worth noting to avoid dangerous constructs in your code. But um, for a lot of these things, it's just a unique pattern of circumstances that actually make it dangerous. Like, if you were to say, you know, try to avoid the the uh, metaprogramming features of Ruby for classes which touch user input, then um, named root collection set would not obviously be a class that touches user input, right? Because you think when you're writing that class that it's only ever going to be parsing um, you know, get, uh, get called by the framework as it's parsing the roots.rb file. And that, that's all been, you know, okay by the programmers. So everything's totally good. And nobody's ever going to do something stupid like try to create new r- routes at runtime. But then, you know, surprise, surprise, if, um, some other, you know, code that was written by somebody on a different continent years after named root collection set will allow you to instantiate named root collection set arbitrarily, then, you know, bad stuff happens. So, yeah, it's tough. Um, In general, I think there's a lot of value in security and, like, rules of good coding practices and whatnot and that we should try to discover that as a community, but a lot of the, like, off-the-cuff, um, well, if they just did it like this, doesn't work out as well as people think it does. Mm-hmm.
1: So are there any other aspects of this that we want to talk about before I ask the other question that I have, and I think Avdi kind of asked it, but I want to make sure that we've covered the exploits that are out there before I ask my question. The
4: exploits that are out there?
1: Yeah, the ones that have been disclosed. The,
4: the, well, so, so you I don't know what, on your question
1: can, Yeah, why don't you ask right.
0: your question? We can ask more afterward, right?
1: That's true. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so my question is, what about my code? So, I mean, these are things that kind of globally affect people, and they're, you know, that's why they're so critical is because you know, they affect hundreds or thousands or, you know, however many websites on the internet. But my website, how do I avoid putting um, vulnerabilities into my code? How do I avoid writing code that is vulnerable to attack?
4: So, there's a variety of good resources that can teach you the kind of common coding patterns that cause problems. Um, Not so much coding patterns, but usually architectural problems in code. Um, For example, SQL injection vulnerabilities are one of the You know, uh, even though Ruby on Rails will like protect you from them to a large extent, they're one of the huge things that's discovered in um, virtually every pen test. A lot of people just kind of, you know, use the same code that they've used on the last six projects for things like doing uh, user session management or uh, password resets or that sort of thing. And those are very easy to screw up in lots of wonderful, wonderful ways, like allowing people to do, you know, password resets for uh, admins. Um, having your admins get controlled in the same application is as the, like, rest of the users is also kind of a pattern you want to avoid. Uh, and that stuff and more you can find out on the, uh, OASP, uh, list of common vulnerabilities and also in, uh, books that you mentioned. I've got a recommendation for a book on web security, uh, which I thought we were going to save for the pick section. Cool. Yeah. Uh, folks are cool. asking for it. So, okay, where's my note? Um, it's called The Tangled Web. And it's by a gentleman whose name I might mispronounce Zaluski. Um, it's a very good primer that covers everything in from like very high level, uh, not a lot of detail, down to okay, there's you know ways to exploitably turn particular SQL code into injections, and it walks you through doing it. Um, not Ruby or Rails specific; these are you know endemic to all web applications. Uh, so, and that will you know even if you are. Uh, very interested in security. I guarantee you, you will have doors open for you by that book.
2: And
1: yeah. What was that list of vulnerabilities that you were talking about?
4: The OWASP uh, top 10 list. They publish a new one every year. All right, cool.
1: Um, are there any other resources that you can recommend to us before we get into the picks?
4: Off the top of my head, I'm not really a security researcher. I just play one on the internet, but my security researcher buddy, uh, did give me a list of three books to read, and I promptly did not read them, and instead started <laughs> to to death coding applications. But Tangled Web was really awesome. Okay, so, that's your
2: advice, kids. Security is a
4: thing. Go write your apps. <laughs> well, like, um, any there's, particular... there's a trade-off, right? Like, you know, yeah. um, the most secure application is one that's running on a computer which is powered down and disconnected from the internet. Yep. And uh, <laughs> that's not something that achieves business ends at most of our. Uh, Companies. So, you know, we have to tolerate some level of risk while at the same time, uh, it's equally irresponsible professionally and not good things for our businesses. People are getting compromised left and right for using our applications. Right. So,
5: I'm totally making that argument to my next client.
4: We mentioned the the shutdown server.
5: Yeah, we're not putting this thing on the internet. Do you know (laughs) how dangerous it is out there?
4: (laughs) (laughs) There was honestly like a you could have made a credible case for when the patches dropped, saying we should take the website down right now and just, you know, figure out where we are, give it an hour or two, and, you know, have the out, have like the sudden hour of outage be less dangerous than the prospect of the, um, the app being remote compromised in that hour. I think that would have been at many businesses a very responsible thing to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I know that Rain talks about, uh you know, you know, when we when we did that episode with him, he talked about how if your system is compromised, just shut it down because you have no idea how bad the damage is. And, you know, every minute that it keeps running, you could be just making things worse. And and it and if your box got rooted, then there's just really no point in trying to repair it. The best you can do is is burn it down and create a new one.
5: Josh, you have an exciting new security
0: resource for us, don't you? I do. I do. This is a great moment for me to mention it too. So it, it, you know, and especially uh, you know, as Chuck was asking, what do we do about our own code and our own application code? How do we make sure that we're doing a good job with security there? Well, um, friend of the show, Brian Helmkamp, uh the creator of Code Climate, uh, is is right on top of things. Uh, I, I was really impressed. You know, talk about talk about good timing obviously the security stuff has been going on for you know a, a month or two uh, so the, you know he didn't whip this out overnight but code climate has this new feature called security monitor which is um which looks really good for scan you know just like code climate scans your app and tells you like bad programming practices in your code they have this new security monitor feature which scans your code and looks for Bad security practices, and I hooked this up to the application that I've been working on lately and found a half dozen security issues with my code, like mass assignment problems and redirecting to a URL that was provided to me by a user, <laughs> you know having the default routes running, things like that so it's it's really cool. It looks like there's uh there's you know a couple dozen types of security vulnerabilities that it stands for. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, like about 20 or 20 or 25. And, uh, so it's really cool. And, and Brian, uh, was, uh, yeah, he's, he's a fan of the show. So he's offered us a discount code for our listeners to be able to sign up for um, any, any code climate, uh, plan that includes Security Monitor. So you get half off your first three months and they get early access to Security Monitor. And I mean, security monitor looks really good, and I'm sure, and this is just like the first cut at the feature, so I'm sure it will be getting better, too. Um, I've already given him some feedback that he's going to incorporate, and I'm sure other people are, too. So the the code for that is RRSEC13, and I'm not sure how long that code will be good for, but I'm sure if you use it in the next uh, couple weeks, it'll probably be fine.
1: Awesome. All right, let's get to the picks. Uh, James, what are your picks?
5: Um, I've got two um i I read the pragmatic magazine on and off sometimes uh Prag pub it's called and um there was a there was a good article a while back uh from Andy hunt uh about estimation uh that I really enjoyed and it was basically about how the worst thing about estimation is that we basically begin with an infinite set of choices. Which is always really hard, and so he advocated, you know, basically only allowing yourself like four choices: one hour, one day, three days, one week, and uh, and that you can only work in those four choices. And then the, you know, the constraint, obviously, as in most things, programming ends up making things better. Uh, so that was a cool article when I read it, and I really enjoyed it. But in this most recent. Uh, edition of the Prague Pub, there's an article by Ron Jeffries uh, uh, called Estimation is Evil. And that's not actually a, a link baby title. That's pretty much exactly the argument he makes, is that uh, estimation's uh, evil, it does a lot of harm, and uh, it's probably not a good practice for us to engage in at all. Um, and that was really eye-opening for me, and I really enjoyed it. So, if you're one of those people that like struggles with estimation like I do, uh, you should definitely go read these two articles to give you some new ideas and, and stuff uh, about how maybe not even to do it because it's probably not a good idea. That's it. Those are my picks.
1: Awesome. Josh, what are your picks?
0: Uh, okay. Oh, by the way, I, I uh, just got a clarification from Brian saying the discount code um, is going to be good for two weeks from the publication date of this podcast. Which I guess is on the twenty seventh or the twentieth. So yeah, it'll be through the end of February or early March, something like that. I can't do math right now. Uh, um, so picks. Okay, uh, I actually have a code pick. Yay! Um, I've uh, we've picked uh, Stripe before. I think I might have even mentioned Stripe Checkout before, but I've now been using it in anger, and I really like it. So if you need to do payment processing and you want a, a snazzy UI to capture the customer's credit card data and submit it to Stripe and get your token back for you, you can do it without doing your own form stuff anymore. You just drop in a, a couple line JavaScript into your, uh, into your uh, view and you're done. <laughs> it's, it's really, really easy. And there's even some, uh, some ways that you can customize the display. So that's pretty cool. I like that a lot. And uh, then I have uh, a couple a couple fun ones. Uh, I think a while ago I picked the what was it? Fashion at so the uh, Star Trek Next Generation fashion blog, which I was, very, that was awesome. funny. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so from that uh, I discovered a new Twitter, which is Trek and the City, oh, and oh. Uh, and somebody figured out that Kim Cattrall played Samantha in Sex and the City and the Vulcan on like a Vulcan on one of in one of the Star Trek movies. I, I haven't seen those movies in so long. I forget which one it was, wow. but, the, but, but yeah, so Kim Cattrall was in both, both shows. So they, um, they made a, a blog about the intersection of those two shows. And it's basically, uh, if you've ever watched sex in the city, Carrie, you know, the, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker character, uh, does all of these, like near these, uh, you know, Uh, narration bits where she talks about stuff so this is basically like imagine carrie is reading one of her intro bits and they're just like if you can imagine her saying it it's like oh okay yes this totally works (laughs) yeah so it's uh it's just basically imagine um the confluence of those two worlds
1: (laughs) according to imdb it is star trek 6 the undiscovered country yeah it's the the
0: klingon
5: one right yeah yeah it comes up mind mobinger. It's great.
0: Yeah, I knew it was undiscovered country. I just couldn't remember the number. Okay, so so there's that one. And then uh, I found something last night, which was just kind of amusing. Which is, uh, it's another Tumblr. It's femalesoftwareeng.tumblr.com, <laughs> and it's just uh, it, it, it's a lot of um, of ironic commentary. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Okay, so that's my pick. It's freaking Thanks, hilarious. It was yeah. funny. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so okay that's it for me all right avdi what are your picks uh okay
3: i'll start with a development pick there's an article by stephen jackson about pair programming and uh if you're a long-time listener you know i'm pretty big into pair programming i do lots of lots of remote pair programming with lots and lots of different people and i just i really love this article because it basically is a very honest and detailed look at somebody, somebody's experience going from not doing any pair programming to, to doing a fair amount of it and really hits the nail on the head for like, if you're still in that camp of this, you know, this pair programming stuff sounds crazy. And, you know, I, I just, I hear a lot of people that are just like, I don't know. I just, I'm not sure about pair programming stuff. I'm, I'm cool with the other agile practices, but this pair programming stuff, I don't think that's for me. Read this article. If you're in that camp, Um, I think it really covers, you know, why it's worth trying. All right. Non-development stuff. I have been watching house of cards on Netflix and it is some of the best television I have ever seen. Uh, haven't finished yet, but freaking great show really well done. Um, the directing is great. The, um, you know, the, all the actors are great. Um, of course, Kevin Spacey, wonderful. Uh, if you, if you get Netflix, totally check that out. And, uh, what else? There's this food blog. It's kind of a food food and photography blog or a photography of food blog called White on Rice Couple. It's whiteonricecouple.com. And this isn't actually something that I read, but I was enjoying some amazingly delicious food prepared by last night, prepared by my wife, but uh, from a recipe picked by um, our teenage daughter. And I was like, man, that was that was odd surprising, but really good. It was like a uh, Brussels sprouts with sriracha and mint and amazingly good. And, and I was oh. talking to my teenage daughter about it and she said, yeah, I picked that out. And I started talking about some of the other dishes that I've I really enjoyed that she's either made or, or picked out the recipes for. I, I have the, the great privilege of living with a couple of, of stellar cooks. And, uh, and, and she sa- said, yeah, those are all from the same blog, this white on rice couple blog. And, and it's these uh these two people from two very different backgrounds one's like um like i think a, an asian background of some kind like a thai background and the other is from uh a like a cajun background and i haven't really gone through this site much like i said i've mostly just enjoyed the the recipes that, that have apparently come from it but uh if you're into cooking these are really good recipes
2: all right uh david what are your picks uh so yesterday's or yesterday's yeah, last week's episode kind of cleaned me out for picks but uh uh just really quickly how to tell if your cat is plotting to kill you uh by the oatmeal it's uh, his most recent book um theoatmeal.com is a fantastic comic it's it's a little bit uh on the edge of uh not safe for work as far as uh uh language but uh it's just a hilarious comic and he's put all of his cat comics together into a single book uh you get it in paperback or in kindle but honestly the paperback is like 78 cents more and the pull out poster on the kindle really just doesn't work well so uh that's my pick it's the funniest book i've read this year so far
1: awesome so i only have one pick um it's been kind of a crazy week and i haven't had a lot of time to you know try new stuff um the pick is the disney where's perry app for the iphone it's it's one of those uh you have to puzzle your way through how to solve the the thing and free the platypus, and uh, it's it's a fun game. My wife was playing it, and uh, so I've been playing it. It's based on the Disney show Phineas and Ferb, so which is also a funny show. So I guess I'll pick the show too. But yeah, uh, a lot of fun. Patrick, what are
4: your picks? So um, I wasn't really conversant with the uh, picks thing prior to doing this, so I picked ones that are just on security. Um, we talked about Tangled Web earlier, and there's also a um, open source project that does uh, kind of like code linked for you uh, to find obvious points of problems. It's called Breakman, it's at Breakmanscanner.org. Uh, I haven't used it myself, but it comes highly recommended. So, nice. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll
1: wrap up the show. Um, go to Code Climate and get the security uh, feature, um, security monitor. Um, also, you can go to railsrampup.com and sign up for my Ruby on Rails course. Um, I know Avdi's still doing Ruby
0: Tapas, so go check that out because it's awesome. Yeah, and and everybody get on Ruby on Rails security email list. Yes, absolutely. absolutely.
1: And finally, you can sign up for Ruby Rogues Parlay by going to parlay.rubyrogues.com.
5: Great balls of fire.
0: All
1: right. We'll wrap this up. Catch you all next week.